Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. This we should most diligently endeavor to avoid. God cannot bear to see us despise and reject his word, which he has given us out of paternal love. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today we're hearing from Martin Luther, that's right, one of the great fathers of the Great Reformation. We're going back to uh, about 1520 when this sermon was preached. Troy, happy Week of Reformation. Happy Week of Reformation. Yeah, this is, uh, it, I, I, you know, Joel, it's just not the end of October in the Revive Thoughts world. If you're not listening to a solid Martin Luther sermon, uh, we do this, you know, every year to try to commemorate on October 31st when he was putting those 95 theses up on that door. And, you know, some people will say, oh, you know, maybe he didn't do that. I don't want to hear that. Okay. Don't, you know, look, look, history scholars. <laughs> I want to hear that he said, uh, I can say, you know, this, uh, what was the line? Here I stand. I can do no other. And he put the he put the letter on. Don't give me your historical reasons for why it didn't happen. I, I need to believe that he did. So this is what we do, and it's it's always good. Martin Luther is great, and without that nailing of the ninety five theses, you know, the Protestant Reformation, if it did happen, it would have looked probably very differently. We have done this now, just continuing it, and we've had several episodes by on Martin Luther, and all of them have been brought to us by the wonderful Brian Wolfmuller. And this one is no exception. He is so incredibly generous, such a kind friend uh, to this podcast to give us these sermons that he's been, yeah, he just is, he, he's an expert on Martin Luther. We've actually interviewed him twice and they are wonderful. That's really good interviews. If you want to learn more about who Martin Luther is, and he's just shown great friendship to us to lend us these sermons. So it always comes together really well. He has a, just, he has a great voice. I, in my mind at this point, I don't own, I don't even know if I want to meet Martin Luther in heaven because I have his voice now as Brian Wolfmuller's and that's you know I just don't know if we want to we want to change it at this point. Um, but we're going to take another life another look at the life of Martin Luther and and this time I wanted to go after a part of his life that I hope you can bear with us. It might be slightly confusing. Even when I was researching it, it's slightly confusing. I think that's part of the reason why maybe people don't talk about it as much, but it's a really interesting part of his life. But before we do that, Joel, let's do like a little recap just to get everyone caught up. Yeah, Wolfmuller brings these in, uh, in in kind of the old the old king's English. Yeah, it's a, it it really takes you back to the era. You feel like you should be like at a Renaissance festival <laughs> or something like that, listening. For the recap, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Okay, let's switch things Hit up me. a little bit. I'm going to do a little bit of trivia Hit with me. you. Uh, don't cheat now. Okay. okay. What year was Martin Luther? Okay, born? this one I only know because I accidentally just looked at it on the script. 1483. But that that was oh, I had to Google that's... it before I put it in the script because I was like, how old is he? when he does all this. And to be honest, he's like, I mean, he's almost 40. So like he really, maybe, no, no, he's almost 30 when he starts the Reformation. So, you know, he, he well, he's my age now that I think about it. Okay, anyway, let's continue. He has some life yeah, experience on But he's also not an old man. Like he, you know, this isn't, uh, he's, he's kind of in the middle right. there. Primal life. That's when say. Jesus started his ministry. So. Oh my goodness, you know, you're, you're I'm not calling, right. I'm definitely not calling Martin Luther Jesus. <laughs> so, but uh, you know, it's around the same age, so. Troy, what event scared him so bad that he promised to give up being a lawyer to give his life to God? A thunderstorm. And the reason I actually remember that is because I always think it was really interesting. Well, I mean, it's, it's well-known knowledge, but I also think it's interesting because uh, a thunderstorm deeply affected B.B. Warfield's life as it uh, caused some kind of problems with his wife. Maybe she was struck by lightning. No one knows. But I always thought it was interesting that both these great men had, had a deep effect by a thunderstorm. Yeah, I think that's kind of interesting, too. And, you know, I feel like a lot of... Uh 
a lot of these great people in church history have some type of cataclysmic event, whether it's a shipwreck or a thunderstorm or or type of tragedy. A.B. Simpson, who was like left in the forest surrounded by dead bodies. If you guys have not heard that episode, boy, oh boy, let me tell you. Luther, uh, you know, obviously raised Catholic in the Catholic system. He carried an immense weight of guilt. After doing more studying of the scriptures, he carried an immense load of guilt that, that he just associated with the Catholic uh, walk. That, that after doing some studying in, in the scriptures, especially in the book of Romans, he began to question the Catholic teachings. And he began to explore these concepts and believe in justification, you know, that, that it was by faith alone. And the scriptures, not the Catholic teachings, should be the guide for our lives, which was not the, the norm, not the normal way of looking at things in the mid-1500s. In 1517, he nailed, uh, as Troy mentioned, the 95 Thesis to the door uh, of the church in his town. One of the main things that this was calling out was the selling of indulgences, which uh, became the beginning, in air quotes, of the Protestant Reformations. We say in air quotes, we, I mean, there's, there's a lot of great Protestant fathers in church history during this time. With, you know, if you look at 100 years on either side of Luther, um, there's many other really great names that contributed to, uh, you know, what, what we live in now. Yeah. Um, but Luther probably has has the the top billing, you know, on the on the credit roll sheet. He's probably the most well known, I'd say. I like that. If we're if we're using Troy, the movie um, analogy, he's he's the big star, but there were a lot of other people in the credits. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Obviously, this this is a really short summary of his actions. Uh, we did this more just to kind of cover some basic aspects. If you weren't familiar with who he is, if you want to hear more of our other thoughts, we encourage you to go listen to those other Martin Luther episodes, and especially if you can listen to those Brian Wolf Mueller interviews. They're all very very good. What I wanted to look at in this episode was his reaction to what's called the Peasant Revolt. Because I think this is probably one of the most interesting and probably one of the toughest moments of his life. I have noticed that sometimes in ministry there can be these unintended consequences for the believers who are doing God's will that are not so good. And uh, an example is in Acts. You know, Paul comes to preach the gospel, but there ends up being a riot in Ephesus or the persecution of the church in Jerusalem as a reaction to Christians living for Christ there. Or even just Jesus going to the cross, someone else had to be pulled in and had to carry the cross uh, for him for a ways. These people get involved, and because of what's going on in God's plan, other people will sometimes uh, get hurt because God is accomplishing something that requires other people to get involved in that. Church history is filled with stories of Christians living for Christ, and this leads to negative consequences, sometimes for the very people they're trying to live for. And sometimes the people who they have a heart to minister to. Another Man, another example, just thinking of several right now. I mean, when Moses first goes to Pharaoh, you know, Pharaoh says, make the bricks without straw from that point on. You know, the people that Moses went to help were suddenly hurting, and this seems to happen. And this is kind of what I think happens to Martin Luther. The people he went to, he, he's doing this to try to reach out, revolt, and this leads to all these problems uh, for him. The Protestant Reformation kind of kicks off in 1517, if we can just put one date on it. Yet seven years later, there's this disastrous event that will result in 100,000 people dying. And that's, I mean, it's so easy to think about a number like that and not really let it hit us. But I mean, that's the, si- that's the size of a town in a lot of places in America, right? Like that's a lot of people. If you read on the news that an earthquake killed 100,000 and I don't know, pick a random state, Georgia or in a nearby country, you know, in Scotland or something, you would go, oh my goodness, that's terrible. Well, in, a, in about a year's time here in medieval Europe, 100,000 people die. And I just try to imagine you 
would have to feel somewhat responsible, right? I mean, you would just, if you hadn't put that 95 theses on the door, there would probably be no reason for those 100,000 people to have revolted. They did it based on what you wrote, and even though they took it to a place you didn't mean them to take it, you just still have to wonder. And even if you can tell yourself, well, it was, you know, I didn't tell them to do that, but you would, I think you would just kind of wonder yourself, but could I have done it better? Is there a way I could have done what I was doing that didn't cause them to revolt like they did? And so just this hard trying time of his life, I wanted to look at that and go through that because honestly, I, I, just as an individual, I don't know how I would, I don't know how I would go on if something, if I wrote something down and seven years later that happened, I just don't know how I would handle that. Yeah. And what's so hard to understand about the peasants revolt is to us today, it kind of makes a lot of sense. It kind of, it kind of looks right. In feudal Europe, serfs were unable to leave their home, you know, so these serfs essentially think of it as, as peasant farmers. They're not technically slaves, but they also can't really leave. You're, you're kind of, you're, you're too poor to go anywhere. Um, they kind of have, your, your landlord kind of has you in a lock to work that field and to work those lands. And while the lord of the manor ate well and was educated and lived a good life, the serfs usually got none of these things. So when the peasants revolt and decide to go after the German princes, we may think that they, they had the right idea. And yet, if they had won, there, there's little doubt that the Catholic German princes would have eventually crushed them, and they would have all been wiped out. And Luther's ideas would have been wiped out with them. Luther's ideas would have been associated with the revolts and not with breaking from the Catholic Church. And so, again, you can, you can spend a lot of time analyzing what could happen and what did happen and what are the different branching paths and what would have been more ideal. And that's kind of a little bit of what we're doing now, Tron. Yeah, it is. Uh, and here's another thing, too. There are many peasant revolts in history. This is not the only one. There are just s several that happened throughout Europe's history. We did a deep dive on the Joan of Arc. It's a really good episode. If you are on our Patreon, you need to sign up and go get it because it's great. And we talk about the Black Plague, but we also talk about these peasant revolts that are happening during that time. But why this one and why right now? Because you could say, okay, peasant revolts happen. This has nothing to do with Martin Luther. <laughs> but this one really does. In 1521, three men, uh, they call themselves the Zwickau, like the Zikau. Okay, I missed, I, I definitely didn't say that right. And some history buff is going to yell at us, but that's okay. Zikau <laughs> prophets or something like that. And they show up in Wittenberg where Luther had been, and they start preaching what was called the Radical Reformation. So these guys heard Luther's ideas of let's break from the Catholic Church, and they go, yeah. And Luther goes, because the priesthood of all believers says we don't, we're all equal under the eyes of God. And they go, yeah. And they go, you not only that, Luther, you actually, let's take it a step further. We're all also equal under the laws of God, so there should be no aristocrats or kings or princes. And that's really hard for me to understand why that's wrong because yeah, I came from the United States of America, right? Joel, so do you. We don't believe in princes and kings and stuff like that. So I listen right. to that and I go, yeah, what, what's the problem here? Um, and so it's really, these guys start preaching this, but this causes a lot of problems in feudal system Europe for these princes who are already sticking their necks out by going in this Lutheran direction. Now you're asking them to take another step and basically lose all their power at the same time. There is a lot of debate on this subject too, because the Zwickau prophets were Anabaptists. Are they typical Anabaptists? Were Anabaptists a bunch of different groups that all got called Anabaptists, but each ones were different? Uh, it's really hard to tell. 
some of the Anabaptists did some really, really not so good stuff. Uh, the city of Munster, I believe it was, had this huge rebellion thing that happened that is just, it's, we don't have the time to go into it, but it's a wild story. And these guys were preaching some weird stuff, like, you know, the Holy Spirit gave me a revelation to tell you this kind of stuff. And Martin Luther challenged them directly. He kind of challenged them head on and said, okay, you know, um, if the Holy Spirit's telling you this, you know, do a miracle and confirm it. And they go, well, we can't do that. And he goes, well, then I don't know if you're the real deal or not. He was kind of trying to check them out. He did interviews with them and met with them. And he's like, I don't think these guys are, um, are our people. You know, I agree with some of their ideas, but I don't agree with what they're doing. The thing is, we, we have to also remind ourselves that we live and take for granted that we live in a system where all men are created equal, but it would still be 30 years before Calvin and Geneva set up a system where men actually were tried under the law equally. Lords and nobles and princes and kings and Luther's day were not tried under the law like you and I were. If we commit a crime and steal something and they commit a crime, they would have a different law system for themselves because they were considered just you know better people. And this idea and concept was just too new for them to fully be able to embrace. You were asking the preacher, the princes of that time to not only embrace a, co- a whole new system and ditch the Catholic Church, but also embrace a new system that would literally kick them out of power. And it was just too many things happening at once. So after Luther kind of checked in on these guys, interviewed them, looked at some of the other stuff they were saying, and he just goes, yeah, we're not going that direction. So he told his people, we don't want to go with this group of people. Well, this You noticed I said this happened in 1521. These people didn't go away. The Zikau prophets caught up with other people, and their movement really started to grow and grow and grow until in the year 1524, just, you know, the water overflowed, and we started to see the peasants turn around and go, we're with these other guys. We're with the Radical Reformation. We want to overthrow the system, and region after region just kind of starts to explode. This is a really fascinating time in church history. Uh, you know, Luther has introduced this concept to the Catholic Church, to the people, and within months, within you know, within a, a couple years of these ninety-five theses, you see so many different groups breaking out. You see so many different movements being started. There's Troy was using Troy and I were talking earlier, and he used the description of a dam that had you know Luther punched a hole through the dam and there's been so much pressure built up that uh all now you have all these leaks springing forth out of it and some of these leaks are are through luther you know with luther as part of luther's movement and other ones are are other movements that are springing out of this dam due to him weakening the dam to begin with and it's in one of these broken off movements that we see the, the peasants' rebellion here. There were people leading armies against these German princes, and at the same time, Germany had published the Bible in the native tongue, in the German language, and this allowed more people to read the Bible, and so more people were becoming educated and, and empowering those movements. So as Luther's ideas spread, other ideas joined in as well, and people had to figure out what kind of government they wanted to live in right if they're if they're changing everything about the way that they live what government is best to be under a protestant or to be over rather a protestant religion you know zwingli died in battle after trying to establish his own city oliver cromwell he took over Britain in the 1640s 
and even the founding of America, you know, this this is all within a couple hundred years of this event here. There was a lot of things happening around the world. There, a, a lot of people were learning about what kind of governments were best for different Christians to be under. But for Luther, he saw an immediate play out when those same groups that he saw in 1521 grew until they had thousands of peasants all over Germany fighting battles with the armies of these different princes. And Luther does something we might not expect. And maybe you don't even know if this was the best move to make. I know I kind of wonder what I think about it. But first he starts in the middle. He supports authority. He doesn't want God, you know, Romans 13, let's submit to authorities. These are our authorities. We're not trying to overturn all of Europe here. But on the other hand, he sees the states are pe the peasants are in, and they are in bad shape in Germany during this time. You know, if you're trying to pick a timeline to go back in time and live in, nobody is picking, I want to be a serf in the 1500s in Germany. Like, that's just not a timeline you want to go back to. And he recognizes that, that these people are in a pretty rough row. Peasants, in some cases, would sign contracts, for example, that would promise that they their children and their grandchildren would never leave the the landlord's land. They would stay there forever, that they would be with the Lord forever working his land. I mean, that's, I don't know how you describe that as anything other than slavery, where you and your children, your grandchildren can never leave, and you're going to work it till the days you die. Um, I don't know what else you call that. And so the Peasant Rebellion gets to be pretty bad. They attack and kill in mob places, burn things down. They're, they're trying to steal and loot and get things back to the way they want to be. And the princes who are supportive of Luther are getting concerned. They're going like, you know, look, Luther, we're supporting you against the Catholic Church, the most powerful institution in all of Europe on the outside. And on the inside, our lands are getting burned down by your followers and these people who want to agree with you. How do you expect us to do this? We're going to have to turn our armies on them, and you need to support us because if you don't, the Catholic Church is going to come in here and roll over all of us. Like none of us are going to survive this. And and quite frankly, we don't know if we should survive. Like we don't know if we want to stick with you if this is what happens to people who stick with you. And so Luther eventually threw his support behind the princes and told them to put down the rebellions. We need to get rid of these violent peasants because this isn't helping anything. This isn't what we're about, and this isn't my goal here. And so those violent revolts are put down and the princes would kill, as we said, 100,000 peasants in different battles and the peasants would surrender to harsh terms and it would bring them back, you know, under control. It wasn't pretty. And this would be the bloodiest revolution in Europe until the French Revolution. So that tells you what kind of revolution it was. And it would be the first, but not the last, of wars of battles fought between Christians on how to govern and how to, what kind of version of Christianity and governments should be on top. But it's hard not to sympathize with the peasants in my mind because I don't blame them for wanting to get out of the system they were in. And it's also hard not to see in the long run the peasants won, right? Like we don't really have princes and aristocracy running Europe anymore. Like that did eventually go away. And so I don't know. It's, it's a really complex thing. Eventually these people did get away from that and they did eventually get, you know, most of the countries of Europe and the West have a kind of idea that all men are created equal under God. And so it, it, it's hard not to see how on some level, in the long term, they didn't win, but maybe it was just too soon. I don't know. One more thing, too. It's important to note that the Anabaptists have messy moments in history, too. We mentioned one of them earlier. Some of them, they just, they get, it's a bit of a catch-all term. Some of them did some really not good things. And then some of them were pretty peaceful and quiet and did their own thing. It's, it, we don't want to just blame all the Anabaptists because of what some bad Anabaptists did. It's a really, really messy situation. Anyone who wants to tell you, look, it's very clear cut. Here's the good guys. Here's the bad guys. And don't just don't question it. I would go, look, I look at this timeline and a lot of people are changing their minds and figuring things out as they go because this is one of the most chaotic periods you can live through in Europe. And, you know, everyone's trying to figure out what step to take during this time. 
Uh, and yeah, and I think Martin Luther was too. I wish we could look into the mind of Luther and kind of see what he thought about all this stuff because we don't really know what he thought about all this stuff. If, if you know, looking at his life, if we had to guess, it seems more than likely that Luther was not a huge fan of the Anabaptist movement and he thought it was, I'd say, dangering what he wanted to see happen. You know, it, not not the most optimal way to get done what he wanted to see come to pass. He was wanting to bring about change in how people worshipped God and this and other movements, though it may be good for helping peasants, would ultimately put the mission of faith into danger. We go back to that question, you know, how hard would it be knowing that the movement that you started led to so many deaths? And it had to have been a considerable weight that he carried with him. We often forget that these were human beings. They were humans who were passionate about what they believed, and those passions led to actions, Luther himself included. This all started with his passion to see change in the church, to see change in the world. And as we listen to uh, this sermon today, you can hear his heart for God. You can hear that passion that he has. Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 25, Jesus said, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let him who be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, but pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chamber, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. The gospel lesson for today contains two parts. The first is a warning to those pious Christians who should live to see the destruction of Jerusalem in order that they might know it beforehand and be enabled to escape from the calamity. The other is a warning that pertains especially to these last times in which we live, inasmuch as terrible heresies will be introduced in order that we may be prepared, may hold to the true doctrine, and beware of false prophets. Both of these warnings are necessary and in season, therefore we will study them with all diligence. Though the first has reference to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem 1,500 years ago, we may still derive from it the wholesome and comfortable doctrine that we should learn to love and honor the word of God and to live according to it, especially as God in such great wrath has punished the rejection of his word in his own people. As you heard on the tenth Sunday after Trinity, it was a most lamentable event. When the Jews at the feast of the Passover had congregated there from the whole country, so that, as Josephus reports, they numbered about three million people, 
the Romans came to take the city. Such a mass of people cannot keep well in a small place for any length of time. They had to suffer from the attacks of three powerful enemies. One enemy was war surrounding the city. In the city a dreadful pestilence raged. A severe famine prevailed, so that mothers even killed their own children and prepared and devoured them like other meat. Besides this, there was a frightful dissension among the Jews in the city. During the siege and capture of the city, Josephus states, ten hundred thousand men were killed or died, and ninety-seven thousand were taken captive. These captive Jews were sold, but they were estimated at so low a price that thirty of them could be bought for the eighth part of a gilder. Hence it is no empty word which the Savior speaks concerning the siege and capture of Jerusalem. Then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor whatever shall be. Of this dreadful calamity we should speak to the common people every year, that all might take to heart and learn what sin is, which is the cause of such calamities, and also learn to avoid it. It is easy to conclude that as God did not spare his own people who had fallen into sin, he certainly will not spare us if we do not avoid it. It is true God also is induced to punish the sin of disobedience, murder, adultery, avarice, theft, and other like sins, if a man will not repent and avoid them. But such punishment is light compared with this. God does not take all away, but leaves something. As we see from history, he commonly leaves more than he takes away. But in this case, he takes everything away. Hence the sin also which causes him to do so must be greater and more heinous. What is this sin? The Savior says, Luke 19, that all these calamities shall come upon Jerusalem, quote, because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation, end quote. When God's word is not received, but rejected, and when men continue in sin willfully, which was the sin of Jerusalem, then destruction and desolation must follow. God had indeed meant it well with them. He had sent unto them the prophets, John, and at last even his only begotten son and the apostles. All of them had made it their object to teach the people the way to eternal life, to lead such a life that they could have a good conscience here and enjoy God's good grace and blessing. But how did Jerusalem and all the world conduct themselves? They do not want to know or to hear anything of the salvation in Christ. They rather proceed to slaughter the Son of God and the holy apostles and endeavor to save themselves without Christ and his doctrine. It is impossible that God should laugh and not take vengeance on account of this. Just think of it. If you were rich and would find a poor beggar and conclude to help him and would send your son to tell him to come, that you would help him out of all of his misery and make him a rich man, but he would be altogether a wicked knave and would slay your son who brought him such a good message, how would you take such a proceeding? And what kind of relation would you sustain toward him in the future? This is exactly the sin of the Jews by which they had incited such wrath and had earned such severe punishment. This we should most diligently endeavor to avoid. God cannot bear to see us despise and reject his word, which he has given us out of paternal love. The kingdom of Israel was made to experience what the prophet Hosea saith, Israel has cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. Those who refuse the word and grace of God must remain in disgrace and in all manner of heresy. And it is impossible that such a state of things should last any length of time. A total destruction must follow. For this very reason many mon monarchs and kingdoms have been destroyed. Therefore let us with the greatest of care avoid all contempt of the word of God. The Jews, for the sake of the gospel, killed Christ and the apostles. The papists today kill many poor Christians and endeavor to suppress the word of God by force. We do not, thank God, 
commit so great a sin, we wish to retain the word, and yet we observe that in many ways the word is despised if it is not persecuted. God cannot be pleased by your merely going to church and hearing the preaching of the gospel in such a way that you hear it with with your outward ear only, without being made better thereby in the least. For this very purpose God's word is preached unto you, in order that you may be delivered from sins, be strengthened in your faith in Jesus Christ, and lead a harmless and godly life. But because you go on carelessly in covetousness, licentiousness, anger, envy, pride, and other sins, and suffer them to grow on you, as though God had not forbidden them, or you were doing God's service, God can certainly not regard these sins as anything else than contempt, and will, therefore, in due time, inflict severer punishment than you may expect. Hence we should not lose sight of the picture of God's wrath, but adhere to his word with all our heart, attentively hear it, and be bettered by it. For this purpose it is preached. And those who do not change for the better, either despising or persecuting the word, may learn here what calamity will come upon them. For if God did not excuse his own people when they despised and persecuted his word, you certainly should not expect that he will excuse you. For we do not behold merely the kingdom of Israel and Judea, and afterward the holy city of Jerusalem, lie before us in ashes because of these sins, but also Asia, Syria, Egypt, Greece, Macedonia, and other countries, as far as Austria. God's word has dwelt among them richly, but now the Turks have taken possession, who have devastated everything. People lost not only their life and estate, but also their souls, because they were deprived everywhere of the word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. This calamity they brought about by carelessly losing sight of God's word and doctrine. Let this be a warning for us. The time may not be far distant when the papists also, who despise and persecute the word and tenaciously cling to their idolatry, shall meet a similar fate. Hence it is high time to amend and to return, for when the wrath of God is once explained on account of these sins, it is not so easily quenched as we see from the example of the Jews. Not merely the terrible wrath, however, should cause us to abstain from these sins, but we should be induced by the friendly warning to adhere to the word and diligently to hear it and be benefited by it. Both are here presented. The Jews who reject the word are fearfully punished, whilst those who accept Christ and believe in him enjoy the Lord Jesus and their faith being warned and escaping the calamities. And more than this, for the sake of these Christians, Daniel had to point out that the signs more than five hundred years before in order that they might take warning in time to escape before it is too late. Thus far things went on rather unequally. The blind and hardened Jews had actually acted arbitrarily in opposition to the word, and yet they had maintained their supremacy in conducting the government. The poor Christians, on the other hand, had to submit always, being without protection of life and limb. But this lasted only for a little while. When the wrath of God showed itself, the pious were rescued, but the wicked had to suffer and were destroyed. Inasmuch as the wicked mass of the people did not want to accept Christ, as the teacher promised them in Deuteronomy 18, who was to teach them the way to eternal life and salvation, they did not believe him either when he preached about the wrath to come. Believing Christians, however, entrusted themselves for their soul's salvation unto Christ. Therefore they were protected also bodily from the wrath. When the time came that wantonness prevailed in general, and the Romans put their idols and flags in places where the mercy seat and the sanctuary of the Jews stood, then the pious Christians knew that it was time to escape and to flee to distant lands. Thus Christ will reward his Christians who accept his word in faith and use it for their improvement. This, I say, should induce us to adhere to the word more faithfully and to hear it with greater devotion. 
On account of our sins and wickedness, we live in perilous times. The Turks are upon us as our enemies, and there's no way of escape unless we amend and begin a new life. And we have no security against sharing the same fate as the inhabitants of Hungary, whose women and children were led captives into Turkey. There are sad prospects of pestilence, famine, and divisions before us also in Germany. Such scourges are intended for the wicked despisers and persecutors of the word, and they will also have to feel them. But those who will love and esteem the word of God, hear it with devotion, are benefited by it, oppose the sins of the old Adam day by day, and do not follow the example of the wicked world, but restrain themselves and ask, Why should I, for the sake of a piece of money, refuse obedience to God and his word? Should I not rather, for God's sake, give up ten pieces than injure my soul, and offend God with one piece wrongly obtained? Such people, I say, who adhere to the word, confide their hearts and trust in the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, carefully guard against sin, and continue in the exercise of true piety, shall also enjoy the fruit of such piety, while others shall suffer on account of their sins. Therefore we see that Daniel and his own companions, who were pious and did not defile themselves willfully by the sins of the Gentiles, though they were in captive a captivity also, did not suffer so severe a punishment as the impious Jews. Yea, more than this, God exalted them in the midst of their enemies to the position of great lords and enabled them to accomplish much good among the Gentiles. If you remain pious and God-fearing, God also will remember you and will permit you to enjoy the fruits of piety, though it be in Turkey. This we should remember, and therefore be pious and obedient to the word of God. The Savior here adds a few words, which we should also well note. Pray ye, he says, that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. In winter it is difficult to flee on account of snow and storm. As regards the Sabbath day, the Jews had a law which forbade them on that day to go further than a Sabbath day's journey, or about a mile. Christ urges us to pray. He points to the importance not only of readily and diligently hearing God's word, but also of prayer. Such prayer will occasion and induce God to remember us and to add His blessings and give success to our undertakings. In danger and distress, such as we experience in perilous times like ours, we should not suffer in a, d a day to pass without committing ourselves in prayer to the care and protection of Almighty God, asking Him to be with us and to preserve us in every trouble. So Christ also teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to ask for daily bread, for it is not enough to have food and drink in order to sustain bodily life, we also need peace, good weather, and the like. This petition includes every bodily need. We pray that God would protect us against the Turks and the pestilence, and give us a good year and fruitful harvest. And because Christ commands us thus to pray, we have no reason to doubt that God will graciously hear us and give us everything necessary for body and soul if we pray for it earnestly. This is the first part of our text, that we should diligently hear the word of God, be benefited by it, and never despise and persecute it, because God severely punishes despisers and persecutors, but graciously warns, protects, and delivers those who accept his word and live righteously. The second part, as I have said, also contains a warning with reference to these our latter days. This warning begins where our Lord says, Except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. These are dreadful words which we shall carefully take to heart, and the more diligently cling to the word. Our danger is not the same which encompassed Jerusalem, such as war and bloodshed, but it is greater and more serious, such as heresy, false doctrine, and false worship, 
by which we are injured, and not only in body and life, but also as it regards the salvation of our souls, as the Lord says, no man would be saved except those days should be shortened. Whether we are to expect such blindness in the future before the day of judgment comes, we do not properly know. But when we look back, we observe such great blindness and such dreadful, and as St. Paul calls them, strong delusions, on account of which, if God had not in mercy interfered with the light of his word, no one could have been saved except the little innocent children who died after being baptized and before they arrived at the age of reason. For what do we have in popery concerning Christ, forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and peace of conscience to which we could have taken refuge? On the other hand, what strong delusions and blasphemous lies were promulgated amongst the people under the garb of truth upon which they were to base their hope of salvation? Therefore I judge that this prophecy of our Lord Jesus about future delusions is in the main fulfilled. And though delusions and darkness will be also in the future, yet they cannot well be greater than any they have already been in popery, as we have seen and as is their own books will show. Besides, we have no reason to doubt the words, he calls things by the right name and says what kind of delusion it is. Quote, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they should deceive even the elect. It is unnecessary here to make a difference between false Christs and false prophets. Yet, because the prophecy corresponds exactly to history, we may without danger make a distinction and apply the name of false Christs to the Turks and their creed, and the name of false prophets to the Pope and his doctrine. For these two powers, the Pope and the Turk, are no doubt the very Antichrist, against whom Daniel, Christ, Paul, John, and other apostles have warned us. The substance of the Turkish creed is that it rejects the true Christ, the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary, and puts Mohammed in his place. The Turks believe Christ to have been a prophet, who was of some renown in his day, but that he was not God. Hence, whatever Christians expect of Christ must be expected of Mohammed. And he will save men, and is the favorite prophet of God, above Moses, Abraham, Christ, and all others. These blasphemous doctrines and horrible lies have deceived and carried off the greater portion of the world. We see that all Egypt, Syria, Asia, Greece, Macedonia, and many other countries have this faith and live and die in it, rejecting Christ and trusting the evil Mohammed. This is not done by the Pope. He confesses Christ, the Son of God the Father, and the Son of Mary, to be the eternal God, and does not make another Christ. But he falsifies the doctrine of Christ. For all that we expect from Christ and hope to derive from his merit, he teaches us to expect and to hope from the merits, intercession, and work of the saints. For which reason there were no bounds or ends to the worship of the papists. They held the doctrine concerning which the Lord had said, Lo, here is Christ, or there, behold, he is in the desert, he is in the secret chamber. Why did monks and nuns enter the cloister? Why has one become a priest and another a hermit? Why did men make pilgrimages? Why were masses read, heard, or instituted? Certainly for no other reason than to make people believe that in this way Christ, that is, God's grace, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life and salvation, may be found. For this reason Christ warns most against the Antichrist, who does not institute another Christ, nor deny him like the Turks, but who at the same time, by false doctrine, leads away from the true Christ to the creature and his own work, saying, Believe it not, that is, do not suffer yourselves to be deceived, but adhere to me and cleave to my doctrine and my work and merit alone, and nothing shall harm you. And what has been done? 
There has been no lack of faithful warning by our Lord Jesus, as we have heard. Behold, he says, I have told you before. All the fault was with us, because we did not heed those warnings, but went on blindly and believed that we were told what we were told, notwithstanding that the Lord had forbidden it, saying, Believe it not, though you see signs and wonders, for true signs and wonders agree with the word of Christ and do not divert from it. The devil also shows signs and wonders, as Christ here declares and warns. And St. Paul calls them lying wonders because they support lies and lead people away from the word of truth. The Turks today glory in many wonders which Mohammed is said to have performed and to still be performing. I believe that in part they are wonders, but they are not performed by God but by the devil, that he may thereby support his lies. Thus the church of the Pope is full of wonderful signs. One saint is said to have performed this, another to have performed that sign, and though many falsehoods have been put in circulation, we cannot deny that some wonders have really taken place. For Christ himself tells us that those false Christs and false prophets shall show great signs and wonders for the purpose of deceiving the people and of inducing them to hold these lies to be truth. Such signs are not performed by God but by the devil, and him we should not believe. From this you may perceive the foundation of the true doctrine, from which you should not deviate in the least. Note well that the true doctrine points you to Christ and presents him, in order that you may be truly comforted against sin and death. This is done by teaching that we should believe Christ to be true, eternal, and almighty God, one with the Father and the Holy Ghost, who has come to us on earth, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He finally died on the cross, not for his own sins, but for our sins, in order that God might be reconciled and our debt might be canceled, and that we might arise from the dead and come to the enjoyment of everlasting life. In our behalf, Christ has conquered sin and death, so that these no more can harm us, now Christ sitteth at the right hand of God, protecting us against the devil, bestowing upon us the gifts of the Holy Ghost, and answering all our prayer, offered in his name for all that we need for body and soul. This is the true doctrine concerning Christ, and agrees throughout with the word, which alone will enable us to resist Antichrist and his lies. When these doctrines are properly lodged within the heart, they will, first of all, induce people to glory in the goodness and grace of God, to love Him with all their heart, and also to live to the honor of this merciful God. They will begin in true earnest to do all that they know to be pleasing to God, and to avoid all that they know to have been forbidden by Him. They are then pious and holy Christians, because they enjoy forgiveness of sins by faith, and live in the fear of God and in obedience to Him. Therefore Christ so earnestly admonishes us, to adhere to these doctrines and not listen to anything contrary. He promises to, on his part, that he will not suffer himself to be confined to any other place, but that he will be with us in his word and grace always and everywhere. And though it sounds terrible, that great heresy, darkness, and seduction shall come upon the world, yet we are comforted when he says, Wherever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. That is, my Christian church shall remain with me. And though the devil, the Turk, and the Pope be ever so powerful, they shall not harm my Christians, who adhere to my word. May our merciful God in heaven, through the Holy Ghost, for the sake of his Son, Jesus Christ, our dear Lord, grant this to all of us. God's peace be with you, and thank you very much. 
。阿门。Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Brian Wolfmuller. Wolfmuller has a lot of literature, a lot of books that he wrote、uh, around Luther and the Reformation. You can check out his website at wolfmuller.co. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, and it is always a pleasure to think about Martin Luther and the great men of the early Reformation during this time of year. If you have not shared this episode or told other people about Revive Thoughts, we encourage you. We know we have new listeners because you've been messaging us, telling us your thoughts. We hope you will share this episode and let others know、uh, about Revive Thoughts. Let others know about our other shows, Martyrs and Missionaries, and all the other ones we're working on too. But we really hope you would encourage them to listen to this and say, "Hey, listen to this sermon from Martin Luther and learn a little bit about this early time." Of his life, because it, it is it, hard to think of more pe- of people who more affect us today, who have had more impact on us today than Martin Luther. This is Troy and Jill, and this is Revive Thoughts. Revive.